You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. But He is risen. Our Lord and Savior is risen from the grave. I'm just going to open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning. God, for what you did. Lord, for how you made a way, God, when there was no way. Lord, how you sent your Son. Father, you sent your Son to die for us. His body broken for our healing so we could be made whole and complete. And his blood shed on the cross as we just celebrated with communion, God, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could stand before you, justified and made whole, and holy in your sight. So, Father, we thank you this morning. And, Lord, we thank you, God, that you are alive. Lord, that you are alive in us. And, God, I pray this morning, Lord, that we grow to understand even more what that means. And, God, what implications that has for our lives this morning. So, Lord, I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in junior high school, I got involved in drama. I don't know if any of you did drama in high school. Some of you are like, I didn't do drama. I was pretty dramatic in high school, but I didn't do drama. Maybe I should have. But drama was where I honed in some of my skills. I wasn't a very outgoing person when I was in junior high school. I was quite, quite quiet, actually fairly shy. And um, drama is what allowed me to kind of come out of my shell. For the first time, I was able to say everything that I wanted to, but never felt like I could. And I could do it because I was, it was someone else. It wasn't me talking. It was my character that was talking. We had an amazing drama teacher. Her name was Mrs. Showman. And she, it's kind of funny now that I think about it, Mrs. Showman. It wasn't showman, it was like showman. But anyhow, um, and she had a rule that we were not allowed to critique the person's acting. We had to critique the character that they were playing. And so it gave me a lot of freedom to be able to learn to express myself and talk in public. If it wasn't for some of the skills that I learned, I probably wouldn't be standing up here right now with you, sharing with you. So thank you, Mrs. Showman. But the reason I bring this up is because one of the sketches that I did was brought to mind this weekend when I was thinking about this message that I'm going to deliver to you this morning. And uh, it was a sketch by the Monty Python called Pet Shop. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's an old sketch from like the 1970s or, or so. But in this sketch, you have a shop owner who had just recently sold a parrot to a guy. And the guy comes back in with a birdcage and his parrot. And he says, hey, my parrot is dead. You sold me a dead parrot. And the store owner is looking at the guy and saying, no, he's not dead. He's just tired. Oh, no, he's not dead. He's just sleeping. And the guy's like, no, like he is rock stiff. Like he is like... He, he is dead. He's an ex-parrot. And the shop owner is saying, oh, no, you just don't understand these parrots. They like to stay really still and, and surprise people and sneak up on them and bah. And, and he's trying to convince this guy that this parrot is, in fact, not dead. And you have this guy who just who was holding a dead parrot trying to justify, yes, in fact, this parrot is dead. 
And at one point, the guy who's holding the parrot says, this parrot is so dead that when I, on further inspection, I discovered that his feet had been nailed to the perch. He said, if I were to unnail this, this bird, he would fall down to the bottom of the cage. And then the guy is standing there at the shop owner, goes and rattles the cage, and, and he's like, look, he's alive, he's moving. And, you know, and the guy's like, you just rattled the cage. The, the bird is not alive. But I was, for some reason, I, I don't know, just God is a humorous God, and, I, and this sketch that I was part of, I was the shop owner trying to convince the guy that his parrot was, in fact, not dead. But I was thinking about that in, in reference to Easter weekend, that historically speaking, there was a man named Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago, who lived and died on the cross, a crucifixion. There's still people today who do not believe either that he lived at all or that he died on the cross. And it's interesting. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie The Case for Christ or read any of Lee Strobel's books. But it's the story of him seeking out, is there anything to the cross? Was there really this person named Jesus who lived and died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead? Is there anything to the claims of the resurrection? And as he set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ, he came to the inevitable conclusion that he could not, that there was too much evidence, historical evidence, to stack up against every argument which he had, to try to disprove and discredit that Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected again on Resurrection Sunday. The evidence is so strong that even many secular scholars and people who are people who have no faith don't dispute. People that are, are scholars of the New Testament and scholars of religious history. And it's interesting that during the days of Jesus, that he really stirred things up. He was somebody that came and didn't do things the way that people were accustomed to doing it. And he infuriated the high priests and the religious elites of the day to the extent they coerced the Roman, the Romans to crucify him, even though Pontius Pilate saw no reason to put him to death. He acknowledged that he was putting to death an innocent man, which is why he washed his hands and said, I wash my hands of this man. Whatever you do on this point is on you, not on me. There are three main charges against Christ that made people want to crucify him. One was that he just offended people all the time. He spent a lot of time with sinners. In fact, he loved them. He loved the sinners, the untouchables. He was a man that maybe was sent by God and would touch and befriend unclean people and make them whole and make them healed. That was pretty, pretty crazy for that time. He hung around with the riffraff of society. He would go to meals and parties where there are prostitutes and tax collectors and the people that people look down on in their society. And those were the people that Jesus hung around with. Those were the people who he called his friends, the common man, the fishermen, the everyday people that are going about their work. 
And then there was a religious elite, a people who believed that they were holy, that the actions and the things that they did set them apart from everyone else, and that, anyhow, Jesus offended. Number two, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. That was something that you did not do. You did not work on the Sabbath. And number three, he claimed to be the son of God, healing the sick, casting out demons, cleansing a leper, doing a work that only God can do. In fact, one time when he did a healing, he said, your sins are forgiven, meaning that you are healed. Stand up and walk. This act of cleansing a leper, something that only God could do, according to religious law, the act of forgiving sin was something that only God could do. And they claimed that you calling yourself the son of man is making yourself equal to God. And they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Philippians 2, 6 to 11 says that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before we move on, Let's just take a look here at John 10. I find it interesting that despite the fact that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, spoke about the suffering of the coming Messiah, of the chosen one, and the fact that Jesus himself shared with his disciples what was about to come, that he was going to die, that he was going to rise again three days later, that so many of the disciples didn't know what was happening. It was like they were blindsided when Jesus was arrested and taken away. Here in John 10, 11, 14 and 17 to 18, it says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as my father knows me, and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. This commandment I received by my Father. It's interesting to think what the disciples were actually thinking when Jesus was saying these words. Because clearly they weren't thinking what Jesus was thinking. Because if they were, they wouldn't have been surprised. They wouldn't have reacted the way they did. They wouldn't have been cowering in fear. They would have understood what was happening. But I don't really blame the disciples. I look at it and I think, you know, I do the same thing often. 
often I have preconceived ideas about what God's going to do in my life, about how life is going to turn out. And sometimes my preconceived ideas do not unfold the way I think that, that they will. A disappointment sets in. Sometimes I think, God, what is going on? What's happening? I thought this was going to happen. And now this is happening. It's not something new. I read the scriptures and I'm encouraged that it's not just me. That the people who literally spent three years, who were some of the closest friends with Jesus, even the disciple who Jesus loved, and no, his name wasn't Mark, by the way, but it was John. Any other Johns in the room? <laughs> hmm. This morning, I would really like to look at, at, at Luke 24. And it's after Jesus is resurrected. And um, here it says in Luke 24, 1 to 12. But the very early on Sunday morning, the woman went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. So back then, they would take spices and they would embalm and prepare the body for funeral. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. So once again, people, these women who were familiar with Jesus' teaching, who knew Jesus well, show up to the tomb and expect him still to be there. And he's not there. But there's two men, two angels appear in dazzling robes. And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, that he would rise again on the third day. Have you ever looked for a dead man? <laughs> Not been able to find him? Have you ever looked for someone who you think is alive and you found out they're dead? When I was growing up, my mother spent a lot of time going to libraries and studying, trying to find her birth mother. My mother was adopted. And so I remember there were a lot of evenings where we'd go to the Mormon library and we'd go to different places and my mom would be doing research and looking through those giant old newspaper things, looking at birth certificates and trying to figure out where she came from. And I remember one time she thought she found the person that could be her mother and she contacted this woman and she denied, said, no, you're not my daughter. I've, I never had a daughter back then. And I remember my mom was really crushed she thought she'd found her birth mother, and uh, in fact, she hadn't. But a cool thing has happened in her life in the last year where about probably a year ago, my mom received a phone call from British Social Services saying that you have a biological sister who has found you. And she would like to make contact with you. However, if you're not interested, we won't release any of the information to her and you won't have to be contacted by this woman. And my mom's like, bring it on, give me her number. What's her number? Give it to me right now. My mom was really excited. And, and so my mom has found her long lost sister. And since then, they've actually discovered that there's, I think, at least three other siblings 
that were all um, born in little baby houses in, in England, in London, and um, were given up for adoption at different times. Um, but my mom is going to meet, and I'm going to get to meet my aunt for the first time this summer. She's coming for my mom's 60th birthday, and uh, it'll be really fun. I'm looking forward to it. But um, here they are. These women come to embalm Jesus' body. And they're looking for a dead man. But he's not there. Because these angels say he is alive. Why are you looking for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. And in that moment, they remembered that what he had said so they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. So they're so excited by this reality. The tomb is empty. The stones rolled away. These angels say, Jesus is alive. They run back. And what do the disciples do? Well, it says in verse 11 that the story sounded like nonsense to them, and so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Isn't that interesting? I don't believe it, but yet he gets up and runs to the tomb. You know, sometimes actions speak louder than words. And even though he said, I don't believe it, he had to go check. Do you ever do that? Do you ever say, I don't, you don't believe something? But then your actions say the exact opposite, that everything you do actually is saying, yes, you do believe that? Or you say, I don't believe in something. For example, like you're not superstitious or something, but then all of a sudden you're like knocking on wood. I know sometimes it's a cultural thing, but it happens all the time. So here we go. So Peter goes and he runs to the tomb and he's stooping and he peel, peels. I guess he peeled in. And, uh, and then he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings and he went home again wondering what had happened. What had happened? Jesus is not in his tomb. These women were correct. It's interesting that the disciples after Jesus' death on the cross were devastated at the events that had transpired. Their hope, their teacher, their friend, their Lord had been massacred before their eyes. They'd seen Jesus be killed in the most horrific and painful execution known to man, the Roman execution of crucifixion. They were full of doubt, full of sadness. They'd lost hope. They were fearful that the temple might go after the followers of Jesus also, and so they were hiding the Bible says in John 20, 19, that they went behind closed doors. Continuing on in Luke, verse 13. It says, the same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed about these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But he kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you disciples intently, what are discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness ridden across their faces. 
And one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened in the last few days. Is there anyone here that always feels like they're always behind the eight ball? They never know what's happening. They're always left behind. That's who they thought they were talking to, the guy that knows nothing. The guy that's always clueless. The guy who sees something happen and he doesn't even know what he just saw. Some of you know somebody in this room that's like that. Maybe some of you are that person. But that's not who they were talking to. Jesus then responded and said, what things? They said, the things that happened to Jesus, the man, of, the man from Nazareth, they said, he is the prophet who did powerful miracles and was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some woman from our group of his followers. Uh, what just happened there? Oh, then some woman. I thought I accidentally put the slide from the last one. Okay, anyhow, there we go. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body is missing. And they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people! <laughs> you find it so hard to believe that all that, all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to come and suffer these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you imagine you're telling some, this, some clueless guy about what just happened the last three days and all of a sudden he starts rebuking you? Like, you fools! I'm sure there's some people here that would be like, see ya. But no, they keep walking with the guy because he starts to begin to explain what transpired. He clearly had revelation that they did not. And rather than repelling them, it drew them in. Because that's what God does. He draws people in. Did you know that he can draw you in and correct you at the same time? That correction is not rejection? that's what a loving father does. He corrects and he guides and sometimes might have to rebuke some things, but he does it out of love. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. By the time they were nearing Emmaus, at the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he was going on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So we went home with them, and as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. And then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. When I read this, to me, I see a playful Jesus here. He walks at least two miles explaining the things of what have transpired. They don't know who he is. He sits down to eat, breaks some bread, passes it to his disciples. 
they're then able to see who he is. What does he do? Disappears. Interesting. He didn't even stay around to chat. He's gone. I don't know. To me, when I was reading it, I'm just like, I feel like he's almost like, when you read how he would just show up and disappear and appear and disappear, it's almost like he was the kind of playing with them like, hey, I'm here. No, I'm not here. I'm here. I'm not here. Well, maybe that's just what I would be doing if I was Jesus. <laughs> maybe that wasn't his intention there. I don't know. That's not revelation, by the way. That is the child in me, which Jesus loves, by the way. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He's even appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus appeared to them as they were walking along the road and that they recognized him when he was breaking bread. And just as they were telling him about it, telling them all about it, Jesus himself suddenly appears, standing among them. See what I mean? He did it again. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. When I was growing up, my best friend Dan and I used to like to scare each other. And so one of us would try to sneak down into the basement first sort of thing. And we'd hide. Then the other one would come down and be like, hello, where are you? And then usually I liked it. I was a little bit more playful with that. Usually it would just make him angry. He'd be like, Mark, if you scare me, I'm going to kill you. And he'd be doing all that stuff, and he'd get really upset, but I just loved it. I loved scaring him. But we do it back and forth to each other. But just the way he just randomly appears and says, peace, be with you. It's just like, and they're all just horrified. Like, they're thinking they saw a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts so filled with doubt? You'll notice that no matter how miraculous the sign, no matter how clear the evidence, no matter what is stacked up, there's some things that there'll always be doubters. There'll always be some doubters in the crowd all the time. And there's no exception here. Jesus is standing before them, and their hearts are filled with doubt. And Jesus says, look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you can see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. I was thinking about this week that if I could reenact this in a movie, I can just imagine Jesus, after showing his feet, says, got something to eat? And them all just standing there, just like with their mouths hanging open while he's sitting there eating broiled fish. I've never had a broiled fish. Is it good? 
Some people are going, eh. Depends if you like bones or not, I guess. But Jesus didn't have any bones to pick by this point. So bad. So bad. So they stood there in disbelief as they stood there and watched him eat broiled fish. Then he said, I was with you before. I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and, and raise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send my Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from in heaven. thinking about this this week that right after this the Bible shares that they went to Bethany and and Jesus ascends into heaven and they see Jesus leave and leave the earth he didn't just disappear like he did the other times but they see him physically lift off the ground and go into the clouds and ascend into the heavens which means that he's still alive and he still has a body and he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now as we speak. But I was thinking about this this week, the resurrection and the resurrection power of Christ. What does it mean for us today? What does it mean, practically speaking, for the church today? John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. Eternal life. That's what we have. But sometimes, what we've received and our perception of our experience can be two different things. And sometimes there's this gulf, this gap between what we see in Scripture and what we believe and sometimes what we feel and what we're experiencing. Olive oil. This is a, a company, um, some friends of ours in Victoria started an olive oil company. It's a gourmet olive oil company. And all they sell is olive oil and a little bit of vinegar. But it's high-end stuff, and what they would do is they'd have a tastings, and you'd go in with a little spoon, and you could go and you could taste all of their different balsamic vinegars, all of their oils, before you decided what you wanted, what you could bottle. I was thinking about olive oil this week as I was preparing this message. I was thinking about the death and the resurrection of Christ and how we have forgiveness for sin. 
that this is the gospel, this is the good news, and it's just as relevant today as it's ever been. But I think sometimes what happens is we forget that we have the Holy Spirit, that when we come to the Lord, that the Holy Spirit comes to us and dwells us. And sometimes we're seeking a particular experience but sometimes we don't always experience it in the same way. But God wants to come into our life and fill us. God wants to come and bring the realities of the kingdom of God here on earth, here into where we live. Bring the things that are unseen from the kingdom of God and bring it into the natural realm where we live. And he demonstrated that in his life when he came and he was anointed um, and filled with the Holy Spirit and began to perform miraculous signs and wonders, began to enact the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It was never intended to end. We're still in the same season of bringing forth the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Ephesians 1.19 to 23 says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him, for this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but in the world to come. God has put all things un under the authority of Christ and made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body, it's made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. Through his resurrection, Jesus earned a new life for us, the kind of life in which we are born again. We experience a newness of life, where our old life passes away and our new life in Christ is brought forth. And this is why Paul can say that God made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, we've been saved and raised up with him. When God raised Christ from the dead, he somehow thought us as being raised up with Christ and therefore deserving of the merits of Christ as Christ's resurrection. Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.3 that his goal is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You see, Paul understood that even in his life on this side of eternity, the resurrection of Christ gave new power for ministry, for the advancement of the kingdom of God, and to be able to live an obedient life. To reiterate Ephesians 1.19, Paul says, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. Romans 6, 4 says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, into death, so that Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, that we too might walk in that same newness of life. And verse 11 says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. You see, this new resurrection power in us includes the power to gain more victory over sin because sin no longer has dominion over our lives. 
By the Holy Spirit, we are empowered for ministry. We are empowered to live abundant lives for the work of the kingdom of God. Acts 1.8, after Christ was resurrected, he tells his disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. The empowerment to boldly proclaim the gospel, to work miracles and overcome all opposition of the enemy in our lives was given to his disciples. And that same Holy Spirit lives in us, lives in his believers, lives in his children. All of us that call ourselves children of God have received the Spirit of God. The same resurrection power is in us today. So what is this gap then between what we know theologically to be true, what we know in the spiritual to be true, and us experiencing it here on earth now? What's that gap? There's a show called Last Man Standing with Tim Allen. It's kind of a recreation of, in a sort of way of that old show, the Tim, the two, what was the home improvement? Thank you. And uh, Rena were watching that recently. And um, at the end of every episode, he has a little vlog that he does. And sometimes he bridges some real heavy stuff in, but he always does it with humor. And I wanted to share one of the little dialogues that he has with his vlog people on the show that I feel kind of spoke to me about this issue. Tim Allen says this, it's not about how many summers we've left, it's about what we choose to do with those summers. If you spend all your time watching The Walking Dead marathons, you're no better than a zombie. Actually, maybe you're worse, at least they're walking. You're sitting on, the ba on your backside. The Bible teaches us that we start out as dust, and unto dust we shall return. Don't be a dust bunny in between. Don't be a dust bunny in between. Climb a mountain, ride some rapids. Don't live like you're already dead. Because if God can't tell the difference, he might just go ahead and grab you early. Interesting. That's, when I watched it, I was like, wow. Don't be a dust bunny. Is it possible that the discrepancy between what we know to be true, what we believe to be true, what we read in the word of God, what is the experience of the early church in Acts is not happening because of our choices, of the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we conform ourselves to the world around us more than to the kingdom of God that he's wanting to establish in the world around us? Is it possible that we are to continue doing the same work that Jesus did? Isaiah 61, 1 to 2 says, The Spirit of, God, of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
most Sunday mornings I shave. I don't know if any of you noticed. I didn't shave this morning. You want to know why? I went to my drawer. Oh, no, I had time, Effie. I had time. I went to my drawer, and I pulled out my razor, and it was dull. And I don't know if any of you have shaved with a dull razor. It hurts. You get razor burn. And I thought, okay, I can mangle my face, or I could go with a little bit of 5 o'clock shadow to church. But I was thinking about this spiritually this morning. I think some of us are trying to do life with a dull blade. And our lives are looking a little bit mangled. They're not looking like they should because we're conforming ourselves to the wrong image. We're conforming ourselves to the wrong image. We think, God, why isn't things, why aren't things happening in my life? But look at your life. What what does your life consist of? Are you going to a job every day that you meh, tolerate for a paycheck? You're maybe not treating it as a missions opportunity. You're not seeking God every day, saying, God, how can I be your hands and your feet and be you? to the people that I work with. But you go to work, and you're just like everybody else. And you gripe and complain and moan and stand around the, the, the cooler and chat about the same things as everyone else. And then you drive home, and you drive into your driveway and close the garage door behind you and go into your little abode, your own little private oasis, and sit in front of the altar of the television and watch Netflix until you can hardly keep your eyes open and drag yourself and your butt back to bed. And we wonder, God, why aren't you working in my life? Why do I feel dead? I thought I had life in me. I can say this because I do this. There are nights that I'm like, I should right now be doing a school assignment, but this YouTube video with Jordan Peterson is so much more interesting right now. But what do we fill our life with? How do we actually live our lives? Are we seeking the face of God? Or do we just live like everyone else, try to squeeze in what we can on Sundays, go from conference to conference, trying to receive something from someone else, just a piece of what they have, but we're not wanting to put in the work and the time and the effort to receive what they have. Because what they have is a relationship with Jesus. What they have is a personal relationship with Jesus in which they have intimacy with him because they spend time in their prayer closets, in their rooms, praying and reading their word and crying out to God and seeking his will for their life. And then we kind of slack off and come to church and thinks, why don't I have it like him? Why don't I have it like her? And we'll go to that conference. We'll go to wherever it is. We'll get them to pray for us because, God, if I can just have a little bit of their anointing, a little bit of what they have, and we don't realize that you already have the source of what they have, which is the Holy Spirit, 
but it unfortunately is dull in your life. Not because God isn't sharp, not because his word is not sharp, but because we dull it by our own life choices. And so it is Easter. It's Easter Sunday. Let's make a change this morning. Worship team can come up. This morning, we have resurrection life in us. But not all of us are experiencing it like we should be, like we could be. And maybe there's things in our life that we need to evaluate and say, God, what am I doing here? And I'm not saying quit your job. I'm not saying do anything drastic. I'm saying take everything you do and everything you are and take it to God and look for opportunity. When you go, like the oil picture that's up there, you see sometimes what happens, actually I'll give you another example, not just oil, because you usually don't go fill yourself up with oil. 10 years ago, I was at Vancouver and they have this ice cream shop. I can't remember what it's called. They have like 300 different flavors of ice cream. And they give you, you can go and you can sample as many as you want. So I went in and I started sampling all this ice cream. And there's like so many flavors. There's things I'd never heard of. And I start testing and testing and testing and testing. And finally the lady says, after having like 20 little tiny spoons of ice cream, she says, what can I get you? And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm so full. And I'm thinking, I can't just come in and just sample everything and walk out without buying something. So I got an ice cream, I took like two legs and I threw it out because I couldn't stomach it any longer. I think sometimes we live a sampling Christianity where the problem is with this oil here, there's oil, there's anointing, there's the spirit of God, he's wanting to pour it out on you. But the problem is we're not committed. When you go into this place to get oil, there's these huge vats, these big silver vats that are filled with oil. And when you know what you want, you go and the lady will go and take a bottle and fill the bottle for you. But the problem is, if you don't know what kind you want, if you don't know what you're looking for, they're not just going to fill a bottle for you and give you something random. You got to know what you want when you go in there. And I think some of us maybe aren't fully committed. We, we're, we're testing. We're testing. We're testing. We're trying different things. But we're not committed enough we're not decided enough. And so we're not able to be filled because it's like we, we ha- we're not making the decision. It's like we're kind of one foot in the church, one side of, outside the church. We're not as committed as perhaps we should be. But this morning, my prayer is that we would begin to see the power of the resurrection life transform us that we would begin to look around. We'd look and we'd see injustice. We'd see things going on. And rather than just complain about it and think that's horrible, say, I serve a God that can transform lives, that can take a dead man and bring him back to life. We'll be people who will walk out in hope and in life and in faith 
and believe that God is going to transform this community, that God is going to transform everywhere we go. But we have to change our thinking. We have to change some of our behavior. And so, Lord, this morning, God, I thank you, Lord, that you are good. God, I thank you, Lord, for what you did for us. And God, I thank you for the life that you've given us through your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would be filled by you. Lord, that we would be empowered for the work of the ministry, God, that we would have vision and direction. But God, I pray, Lord, that we would make decisions. Lord, that we would evaluate our lives. God, we'd look into our heart and say, God, what areas of my life have I not surrendered to you? God, what areas of my life am I holding on to myself? What areas of my life am I holding on to my own selfish ambition and unwilling to lay it aside for whatever reason? And God, I pray for boldness, God, this morning. And God, I pray that you would fill us. And Lord, that we would not be fearful. But God, we would walk out in hope and in victory, God. That we would not fear the cross that we must bear. Because God, we know that there will be trouble. There will be trials. There will be persecution. If we follow you. If we follow you. Some of us don't face any persecution because we're pretty good at avoiding it. I know there have been many times that I've chosen not to share my faith, not speak up, not pray for someone because I felt like they wouldn't receive it well, even though I felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit in my life to enact that, to say something, to do something. This morning, I just want to encourage you to stand before God and just say, Lord, what areas of my life do I need to give to you? We're going to sing and we're going to worship God. And if there's anything that comes to your mind that you want prayer for, come to the front. If you need to just take a minute and just spend some time with the Lord, do that. But please go home. Spend some time with God because nothing is going to replace that personal prayer time you have with God, reading a word, the stuff that we, the people that we admire in the faith, the people that we want to be like. We're not going to get there just from them laying their hand on us. We're going to get there by doing what as they do. Spending time in the presence of God, learning his word, getting to know who he is personally, and letting his spirit fill us and transform us from the inside out. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.